A quick note before we start. Breakfast will be taking a Christmas break next week, and we'll be back in the new year with our final two episodes of season two. Thanks for listening, and we really hope you enjoy this episode and the rest of the season. Hi, everyone. I'm Father Graby, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about Auschwitz and the problem of suffering and evil. It's appropriate that one visits Auschwitz in silence, because there are no words. There's no conversation, no idle chit-chat, no group pictures or selfies. This is not a tourist attraction. It's a tomb, a place to remember. To remember the millions who perished there, and the evils of which mankind is capable. I visited Auschwitz on a bleak morning, The foggy sky and damp weather seemed right. There is no sunshine here. You read about the Holocaust in history books, and you watch Schindler's List, but nothing can quite prepare you for the place itself. To walk through the barracks, to stand inside the gas chambers, to see the execution wall. Display cases when you enter have photographs of many who died there, their identification cards, their belongings. There are piles of suitcases, and eyeglasses, and toothbrushes. The toothbrushes really got to me. There's something almost childlike about it. These people who took a toothbrush to their grave. It's difficult to speak about this place, and it should be. We shouldn't have words to describe it. The scale of such evil and death is almost impossible to fathom. The mind reels at it. And it raises that haunting question, where was God in Auschwitz? The problem of evil and suffering is the greatest challenge to faith. How could an all-good and all-powerful God let this happen? And the dilemma presents itself. If God could have prevented this but didn't, then he's not all-good. And if God wanted to prevent it but couldn't, then he's not all-powerful. Either way, he's useless and undeserving of my time, much less my love. The problem arises whenever there's suffering, although sometimes we can point a finger to blame. The Nazi regime, or a shooter, or an airplane hijacker. The problem becomes even more acute in the face of natural disasters. Earthquakes that kill thousands of people, thousands of children in an instant. Why? What did they do wrong? And then there's the suffering that doesn't make headlines, the sorrows of the everyday. Many years ago, I spent a summer in Italy, living with a local family, taking some classes. One evening, the topic of religion came up. The family was nominally Catholic, but didn't practice. In the course of the conversation, the mother told me that she didn't go to church because she's angry at God. I asked her why. She told me she's angry at God because her father died. I wondered if there was some tragic circumstance. But she told me that he died peacefully in his sleep at an old age. It didn't make sense to me. And I thought she was being unfair. After all, that's how life works. Being much older now and not much wiser, I realize that it doesn't have to make sense. 
love doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God loves us so much that he created us at all and then gave his life for us. Why? Why even bother? Love doesn't always have its reasons. It just loves. This woman doesn't have to justify her grief. She misses her dad. I once read an essay by a young mom who gave birth to her stillborn child, and she recounts how so many people felt the need to explain this or say something they thought would comfort her, but it only made it worse. They told her, God wanted this baby in heaven, but she wanted him here. They said, I'm sure you'll have another, but she wanted this one. They told her that this too shall pass. Well, it hurts now, and it should. I'm sure those people meant well, but sometimes less is more. We can't know her pain and we can't take it away. Sometimes a simple, I'm so sorry, is all that we can muster. To be there for her, to cry with her. That's the root of the word compassion. It means to suffer with. God suffers with us. He walks with us. He understands. God doesn't want a single one of us to suffer. In fact, it wasn't part of his original plan. In the beginning, before the fall of our first parents, suffering and death were not part of the human experience. They came about as the result of sin that wounded our relationship with God and with each other. Every one of us has, from the moment of conception, inherited that original sin and its effects, which include suffering. And even though God doesn't want us to suffer, he does allow it. Why? In Jesus' time, it was generally thought that someone suffered as a direct punishment for his or his parents' sin. Blindness, disease, poverty, were all considered signs of divine disapproval. Jesus disabused them of this false connection. Someone isn't blind or lame because he sinned or because his father sinned, but because we live in a fallen world where the innocent often suffer while the wicked often celebrate. We don't know why God allows some particular suffering. It remains a great mystery and requires great trust. One of the reasons could be to call someone to repentance. Suffering isn't always or even often a result of someone's sins, but sometimes it is. Sometimes God allows someone to suffer as a type of wake-up call. Nothing concentrates the mind like the prospect of death. Someone who gave no thought to the afterlife, to his immortal soul, and lives a life of real sin, suddenly receives a terminal diagnosis and begins to think about the big questions and perhaps gets his life in order. It's a sobering reminder that sickness and death are not the worst things that could happen to someone. The worst thing that could happen to someone is to lose out on heaven, to end up in hell. That's not at all what God wants for us. It's not why he created us. And sometimes he throws us a lifeline in a disguised and unexpected way to help us get back on track. Suffering also reminds us that our ultimate happiness is not on earth. We're not made for this world. That's why St. Augustine famously said that our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. Yes, there are joys and pleasures in this world, and many of them are good, but they're also fleeting. The moment passes, the feeling fades. The party ends, the guests go home, 
but not in heaven. That party never ends. And some suffering can remind us not to focus only on the here and now. We're travelers through this life, and we can't mistake the journey for the destination. A comfortable seat in first class might make you wish the flight were longer. The person cramped in a tiny coach seat can't wait to arrive. We need to have the long view, and remember that present sufferings are not the last word. We can't expect justice in this world, only in the next. Suffering can also humble us to surrender to God's will. It reminds us that we're not in charge, and we don't have all the answers. The advances in science and medicine have been wonderful, and we should try to reduce suffering and pain as much as possible. God gave us the brains to do so. But we're not gods, and we can never eliminate suffering entirely. Even if we got rid of all bodily suffering, there's still the suffering of the soul. The pains of heartache and loneliness and anxiety and despair that often hurt far worse. When suffering forces us to ask why, it's a reminder that we don't have all the answers and we need to trust the one who does. Those who suffer can offer a powerful example to others who might otherwise reject suffering and fight against it. Their patience and trust might lead others to open their hearts to a mystery greater than themselves. The paradigm of innocent suffering in the Bible, besides our Lord's passion, is the book of Job. Job is a good and virtuous man, whom the devil thinks is good and virtuous only because he has so many worldly blessings, health and wealth, family and friends. When Job loses all of these and suffers greatly, he remains faithful blessing God, showing the purity of his faith and devotion, and offering a powerful example of trust. It can also inspire gratitude. Whether we're suffering ourselves or see others who are, it can remind us of the many blessings we have and often take for granted. We often don't appreciate our health, for example, when we're healthy. We just don't think about it. It's only when we're sick that we appreciate all the times we're not. Finally, and most importantly, suffering unites us to Jesus on the cross. It is only in the cross that suffering makes any sense at all. Here is God, the only perfectly innocent one, who freely, willingly suffered for our sake. He died so that we could live. The word passion means love. It also means suffering. The two always go hand in hand. All true love is not an emotion or a feeling. That's a childish idea of love, and one that rests on pretty shaky ground. True love is a choice, an act of the will to put the good of the other ahead of ourselves. It's a process of dying to ourselves, to our selfish instincts, our needs, our wants, so that the other might live and grow and flourish. As Jesus tells us, Greater love than this no man has, to lay down his life for his friends. The cross is the greatest symbol of love in all the world. The word passion, or suffer, really means to allow. We allow someone to have a claim on us, to open ourselves up, to become vulnerable, literally able to be wounded. It is the wounds of love, a heart that is pierced and open. 
It is only God's love for us that makes sense of the cross, which otherwise is folly and failure. Without love, it is meaningless. And Jesus invites us to share in that love. The whole Christian life is about dying to ourselves. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We have to die every day to the old self of sin and every day be reborn in Christ. That process is painful and it hurts. Growth always hurts. Whether it's learning a new language or a new sport or a new instrument, it's tedious and difficult. It's easy to give up. That's not what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to conform ourselves to Him, meaning to His love, and that only happens through the cross. We all have a cross, which Jesus invites us to take up daily and carry with Him. Some crosses are heavier than others, some are more easily hidden, but suffering is always part of this fallen world. But it is not meaningless. It becomes an opportunity to identify with Jesus, to share in his self-sacrificing love. St. Paul writes that he makes up in himself what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now, what could be lacking in Jesus' perfect sacrifice, which was sufficient to redeem the world a million times over? Well, what was lacking is us, our participation in it. Jesus won the victory, but now we have to claim it and make it our own. When we suffer, perhaps in ways we didn't foresee or choose, we can use that to make it a gift of love. It becomes a gateway for God's grace to come more fully into this world. It offers a powerful lesson to the world that suffering now has meaning, that it is redemptive, because it shares in the redemption that Jesus won for us through his sufferings, through his love. None of this pretends to offer a complete answer to the problem of suffering and evil. Whole libraries could be filled with attempts to do so. And even if we could explain it, it wouldn't take it away. I could explain to that woman in Italy why people die, but it doesn't take away her pain. When we look at that mystery, often through our own tears, we can either rebel and kick against it, or, like Mary, stand beside the cross as our own heart is pierced. We realize the limits of our human minds, that we can't see the full picture or know how this all fits into God's master plan. We have to trust that he knows what he's doing, that he didn't cause this pain or evil, but that he will bring something very good out of it if we allow him to. One of the most moving parts of Auschwitz is the cell where St. Maximilian Kolbe died. You're probably familiar with his story. He was a Catholic priest sent to Auschwitz. One day, a prisoner escaped, and as collateral, the guards chose ten men to be killed in his place. One man whom they chose began sobbing, pleading that he had a wife and children. Father Colby stepped forward and offered to die in that man's place. The guards were stunned, but they accepted the offer. Father Colby led his fellow inmates in daily prayer as they were being starved to death. After two weeks, he was the only one still alive, and they gave him a lethal injection. Maximilian Kolbe was declared a saint by Pope John Paul II, 
with the man whose life he saved present for the occasion. That same Pope, on an earlier visit to Auschwitz, placed a paschal candle in Father Colby's former cell. The paschal candle is a symbol of the resurrection, lit at the Easter Vigil, a sign of light amidst the darkness. Where was God in Auschwitz? He was in Maximilian Kolbe, in a sacrifice that was stronger than death, and in countless other unknown acts of love that show that death and destruction, suffering and sorrow will never have the last word. That can be difficult to believe in this fallen world, this valley of tears, but we only see the present sorrow. We can't skip ahead to the end of the story to find out that everything turns out all right in the end. We have to trust that our good God is directing all things, all the crooked lines, to the good that He has planned all along. When we're sick or in pain, we can't remember what it feels like to be well, but we know that it will get better. St. Teresa of Avila once said that from the vantage point of heaven, the life of greatest suffering on earth will seem like one night spent in a bad hotel. In the meantime, that paschal candle still stands. In perhaps the darkest place in human history, there is a light shining in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Mm -hmm.